Ave Maria Purissima. Uh, we're not going to cite every source since it's not an academic exercise. As usual, the quotes will be cut, pasted, and edited. Okay, last week, we considered what we've been told about the state of the world, about the moral condition of the world before the second coming. We saw in the last days, although the men shall both be very wicked in their works and perverse in their ideas, loving pleasure more than God, they will still profess to be Christians. We saw in the last times there will be an absolutely terrible, unprecedented outbreak of evil, during which time society will be torn to pieces by apostasy, heresy, schism, sedition, revolution, and war. We've seen that in the midst of all this chaos, the Antichrist will appear. And the men who have been resistant to the truth, who don't want to hear the truth because it hurts, because it means they have to change their sinful and disordered ways of living and thinking, men who want to live the way they want to live, these men, the vast majority of men, will believe the lie and be deceived by the Antichrist and follow him. As a just punishment for the rejection of the known truth, they'll fall under the operation of error and God will permit them to have what they do want and what they do love, which is the lie. We saw the operation of error and the marvels and seduction of the Antichrist will not deceive a small remnant of those who love and believe in the truth. Okay, so much for the review. So given the papal warnings, and since the time of Leo XIII, most of the popes have given a warning, and given the spectacular state of society and utter chaos within the church, today, as a working hypothesis, we're going to assume we're in the great apostasy or else we're in the dress rehearsal. And should the Antichrist appear during our lifetime, we want to make absolutely sure that we're not going to be swept away by the operation of error. Obviously, the marvels and seduction of the Antichrist will not deceive those who love and believe in the truth. And since that's the case, we each need to have a single heart in pursuit of the truth, wherever it leads and however painful it might be. Let's start by drawing some insights today from a man who, after having been locked in blindness and sinful behavior, who, after having been resistant to the truth himself, after not wanting to change his sinful and disordered way of living and thinking, who, after wanting to live the way he wanted to live, who, after all that, converted, that man is the great doctor of the church, St. Augustine. Listen carefully. St. Augustine's problem for his conversion was not only that he was steeped in sin, it was that his mind defended his commission of sin. Therefore, in order to return to God, he had first to be convinced that he was a sinner. To return to God, Augustine had to overcome two vices, the habit of wrong thinking and the habit of wrong doing. Yet both habits had a stronghold on his proud, and passionate nature. In order to justify his misconduct, Augustine had become a Manichaean. This was the convenient heresy of claiming there were two gods. The evil God was responsible for all the evil we do, and the good God is the only cause of everything good in our lives. On these premises, Augustine could attribute his life of sin to the evil deity and not feel guilty for all the wrongdoing in his life. 
St. Augustine dates his conversion to the discovery he made that he had a free will. Once it dawned on him that he had the power to control his mind and what to think, and the power to control his will and what to choose, he was back on his way to service to God. On this level of teaching, Augustine is a prophet for our times. There is so much learned justification of sin that whole philosophies have been created to defend man's misconduct by shifting the blame on heredity or environment or education. Anything and anyone that human ingenuity can devise is said to be responsible for the evils in the world today, except the real agent of evil, which is man's free will in refusing to submit to the demanding will of God. Close quotes, Father John Harden. This is really important, so let's pause for a minute and reflect on it. St. Augustine was sinning and he was proud. And the pride was by far and away the greater danger. Why is that? Because when a man is proud, it's very, very difficult for him to admit it's wrong. And so as we've seen, he found a convenient way of excusing his sin. The evil God is making me do it. We see this sort of thing all the time. I was born this way. My parents didn't treat me right. You don't expect me to act like a monk or something. I grew up in a bad neighborhood, and on and on and on it goes. We need to pray for the humility to embrace the truth, no matter how painful, for the humility to take responsibility for our own actions, for the humility to admit it when we're acting wrongly or thinking wrongly. St. Augustine is a prophet for our times, and he has a lot to teach us. Dr. E. Michael Jones has drawn some important observations from the teaching of St. Augustine. I quote, St. Augustine divides the world up into two camps, the city of God and the city of man. The men in the city of God love God to the exclusion of self. The men in the city of man love self to the exclusion of God. Love of God, St. Augustine makes clear, is intimately bound up with the truth. St. Augustine, quote, When a man lives according to truth, he lives not according to himself, but according to God. For it was God who said, I am the truth. Close quote. Okay, so St. Augustine teaches there's two kinds of men that we can find in the world. St. Augustine, we distribute the human race into two kinds of men, one living according to man, the other living according to God. Mystically, we call them two cities or two societies of men, thus St. Augustine. And it's very important. St. Augustine explains that the way that the men in each of these two societies use their wills is what produces these two camps or these two cities, if you will. It all depends on whom they love and how deeply they love what they are willing to pay is the price of their love. St. Augustine. These two cities are made by two loves. The earthly city by love of oneself, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly city by love of God, even to the contempt of self. The one glories in itself. The other glories in God. The one seeks glory from men, to the other, God, witness of conscience, is its glory. 
Close quotes, St. Augustine. So it's an immense help to realize that part of God's mysterious providence is the fact that there are two kinds of people in the world at any given point in history. Those who abuse their free will and refuse to surrender to the loving will of God, who glory in themselves and seek glory from men, and those who want to give the glory to God, who use their freedom for its noblest purpose to sacrifice everything they have, including themselves, to the loving will of God. Back to Dr. Jones. St. Augustine makes it clear that the love of God is intimately bound up with truth. When a man lives according to the truth, he lives not according to himself, but according to God. For it was God who said, I am the truth. Conversely, when a man does not live according to the truth, he lives according to himself and not according to God. Close quote. Okay, so that's another way of understanding this fearful symmetry that's found right in the very fabric of reality itself. The city of God is composed of the men who live according to truth, and the city of man is composed of men who live according to themselves. Now Dr. Jones applies these truths. Religious leaders who suppress the truth can only think, therefore, that something in this life is more important than God. We all know what those things are. Money, sex, esteem in the eyes of men, political power, things which are good in themselves, which are evil when used as a substitute for the highest good. In the name of serving God, they end up serving an idol. And idol worship, as the Bible makes clear, always involves punishment of those who will not serve. Idols symbolize the exaltation of appetite over truth. Close quote. When a man does not live according to the truth, he lives according to himself, and not according to God, he serves an idol. And serving an idol, be it money, sex, esteem in the eyes of others, political power, religious power, serving an idol instead of serving the living God always involves serving a devil who stands behind that idol, always. There are no exceptions. That is reality. Back to Dr. Jones. Certain religious leaders do not proclaim the truth as a service to the people who follow them. They suppress the truth as a service to themselves. They also do it to keep their followers in the dark as a way of consolidating power over their followers. These leaders are to the priests of the Lord God, what Dracula is to Jesus. Jesus shed his blood so that we might have eternal life. Dracula sheds our blood so that he might have eternal life at our expense. Some religious leaders do not proclaim the truth as a service to the people. They suppress the truth as a service to themselves. They also do it to keep their followers in the dark as a way of consolidating their power over their followers. Okay, so what have we seen so far? We've seen that St. Augustine divides the world up into two camps, the city of God and the city of man. The men in the city of God love God even to the contempt of themselves. The men in the city of man love themselves even to the contempt of God. We've seen that the love of God is intimately bound up with the truth, and so the city of God is composed of the men who live according to truth. 
And the city of man is composed of the men who live according to themselves. We've seen that when a man lives according to himself and not according to truth, then he serves an idol. We've seen that serving an idol, whatever it might be, instead of living God, always involves serving a devil who's standing behind that idol. We've seen that some religious leaders do not proclaim the truth as a service to the people who follow them. They suppress the truth as a service to themselves. They also do it to keep their followers in the dark as a way of consolidating power over their followers. So if we're going to sum up what we've seen, we've seen that how we respond to truth is the key to our salvation. If we embrace the truth, if we submit ourselves, our intellects, and our desires in service to the truth, we'll be in the city of God and ultimately be saved. It's that simple. But if we reject or resist the truth, if we live according to our desires and not according to the truth, then we'll be in the city of man, and should we die in that condition, we'll be damned. It's also that simple. Truth himself told us that the truth would set us free. And he knows what he's talking about. Now let's apply all this to various aspects of our current situation with special attention to situations which it's obvious that the leaders are not proclaiming the full truth to their followers, who even if they find themselves swept along in the currents, nonetheless must still take responsibility for their own actions. Obviously, because of time constraints, there's much more that we could say. We'll start by turning briefly to the culture of death crowd. Through men who love God live according to the truth. But when a man lives according to himself and not according to the truth, like the pro-aborts, the pro-euthanasia crowd, the contraceptors, and so on and so on, then he succumbed to a type of the operation of error by serving an idol, which means he's actually serving a devil which stands behind the idol. And in the case of abortion, we actually know the proper name of that devil. The name of that devil is Moloch. St. John Paul II made some very appropriate observations in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae. I quote, The acceptance of abortion in the popular mind, in behavior, and even in law itself, is a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil, even when the fundamental right to life is at stake. Given such a grave situation, we need now more than ever to have the courage to look truth in the eye and to call things by their proper name without yielding to convenient compromises or to the temptation of self-deception. In this regard, the reproach of the prophet Isaiah is extremely straightforward. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. We need now more than ever to have the courage to look truth in the eye and to call things by their proper name without yielding to convenient compromises or the temptation of self-deception. Many people's consciences have become progressively obscured. The acceptance of abortion in the popular mind, in behavior, and even in the law itself is a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more 
incapable of distinguishing between good and evil. Let's turn to apostasy and heresy. The last times we characterized by apostasy and heresy, which are certainly some of the most powerful forces in producing this whole wretched society filled as it is with people with darkened minds and depraved morals who are deliberately and obstinately resistant to the truth. Apostasy and heresy are so obvious at every level in the church that it doesn't bear much comment. All we have to do is simply point towards it. For example, at the recent synod, in which the majority of the bishops present voted in favor of Holy Communion for the divorced and remarried. We need now more than ever to have the courage to look truth in the eye and call things by their proper name without yielding to convenient compromises or the temptation of self-deception. Many people's consciences have become progressively obscured. The acceptance of apostasy and heresy in the popular mind and behavior, even at the very heights of the church itself, is a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil. We've seen in the last times there will be false prophets and false teachers performing false signs and false wonders and preaching a false faith with false words, all under the guidance of evil spirits. In that regard, I want to address a particular situation around which a whole industry has sprung up. We'll start with a brief commentary, theological commentary. Quote, it is clear that our attitude to private revelations must be marked by great caution. Above all, we should adhere closely to whatever directives the authorities of the church give in any particular case, never daring to act contrary to them. Even if the bishop in charge should make a mistake and reject a true vision, we, in following him, are guided by obedience without which no one can please God. Close quotes. How we need to heed this advice. The first thing we should check into is what the local bishop has said about an alleged private revelation. And please note, in these matters, it doesn't matter if he's a liberal or modernist or immoral. If he renders a decision, he's acting as a bishop. And that act does not depend on his personal virtue. It's an act of his office. On that note, and fully recognizing this may cause some dismay, I will read from excerpts of the statements of a local bishop regarding so-called apparitions in his diocese. But before we get to that, we'll just draw everyone's attention to one fraudulent, outrageous, and frankly blasphemous claim by one of the seers. During the supposed apparitions at Magigori, the seers are alleged to be in the state of ecstasy and remain unresponsive to external stimuli. However, when on 14 January 1985, that's a while ago, 14 January 1985, Jean-Louis Martin approached Vicka while she was supposedly in ecstasy and made as if to poke her in the eyes, she instinctively moved away. After this apparition, it gets better. After this apparition, Vicka explained that the reason for her reaction was because Our Lady had appeared with the child Jesus. And coincidentally, just when Jean-Louis made his approach, it looked as if the child Jesus was going to slip from Our Lady's hands. 
Right. Now, if you saw someone dropping a baby, not just our Lord, any baby, if you saw someone dropping a baby, would you try to catch the baby? Or would you jump backwards? Are we supposed to believe that our lady comes down from heaven with the little Lord Jesus in her arms and is going to drop him just when some guy pokes at Vicka's eyes? Can any reasonable man believe this kind of nonsense? This whole episode's filmed. You can watch it on the internet. I have. People who are seduced by these lies are seduced because they want to be seduced. There are many statements by the past two bishops. For the sake of time, we'll limit ourselves to these two. Number one, in 1990, Bishop Zanuck issued a statement concerning a Franciscan priest, Father Vago, who was dispensed from his vows and expelled from the Franciscan order by a direct command of Pope John Paul II as a result of his immoral conduct. It's so outrageous, it can't be mentioned from the pulpit. And as the bishop points out, the whole time Father Vega was living an outrageously scandalous life and still saying Mass, etc., the seers claimed that Our Lady had appeared to them on 13 occasions, stating that Father Vega was innocent, that he was entitled to celebrate Mass as any other priest, and that the bishop was harsh. Number two. In the October 1993 issue of his diocesan journal, Bishop Ratko Peric stated, quote, The bishops of Yugoslavia... There was still a Yugoslavia when this was, decision was made. The bishops of Yugoslavia at their spring meeting at Zadar on April 10, 1991, dutifully declared, on the basis of studies, it cannot be affirmed that supernatural apparitions and revelations are occurring. This is an exceptionally clear ecclesiastical ruling and is a rebuttal of the claims of all those who have claimed to have seen the gospel everywhere and at any time since 1981. If... After serious, solid, and professional investigations, our bishops' conference had the courage to declare that Magigori's apparitions are not supernatural, in spite of massive stories and convictions to the contrary, then that is a sign that the church, even in the 20th century, upholds the truth and keeps it safe. I affirm this unequivocally. And he continues another quote. There are many disorders there. There are Franciscan priests there with no canonical mission, Religious communities have been established without the permission of the diocesan bishop. Ecclesiastical buildings have been erected without ecclesiastical approval. Parishes are encouraged to organize official pilgrimages, etc. Magigori, considered as a location of presumed apparitions, does not promote peace and unity, but creates confusion and division, and not simply in its own diocese. I stated this in October 1994 at the Synod of Bishops and in the presence of the Holy Father, and I repeat it today with the same responsibility. Close quote. We need now, more than ever, to have the courage to look truth in the eye and to call things by their proper name without yielding to convenient compromises or to the temptation of self-deception. Many people's consciences have been progressively obscured. The acceptance of false apparitions and false visionaries with false signs and false wonders is a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil. Another characteristic of the last times is schism. 
In a time of apostasy and heresy, schism can seem very attractive, very tempting to those Catholics who manage to keep the true faith because it offers an apparent solution for all the chaos. Let's just get away from all of this. Schism is the crystallization of orthodox dissent. Schism occurs when either a group or even an individual, while keeping the true faith, nevertheless voluntarily, knowingly, and deliberately separates himself from the unity of the church by refusing to submit to the authority of the Pope or to remain in communion with those who are subject to him. I'll just read the last official catechism before the recent one was called the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X. It's about a century old. I'll read the question from that. Catechism of Pope St. Pius X, question 16. Who are schismatics? Answer, schismatics are those Christians who while not explicitly denying any dogma, yet voluntarily separate themselves from the Church of Jesus Christ, that is, from their lawful pastors. So that's what schism is. Let's not forget that at Fatima, Our Lady asked for the conversion of Russia from schism to Catholicism. Orthodoxy is schismatic. St. Augustine comments on schism. St. Augustine, it is a manifest rule that one ought in no wise secede from the Catholic communion, that is, from the body of Christians throughout the world, by the establishment of a separate communion, even on the admission of evil and sacrilegious men, close quote. So St. Augustine makes it perfectly clear that even with evil and sacrilegious men present in the church, we got a bumper crop right now, boy howdy, but even with that, we cannot and must not, under any circumstances, separate ourselves from the unity of the church and form a separate communion. Notice that St. Augustine is not citing canon law. And there's a good reason for that. The reason for that is schism is essentially a question of moral theology, not a legal question. Schism is not something that comes into being by a legal declaration. When speaking of heresy, for example, St. Alphonsus speaks of heretics before God. In other words, of someone who's a heretic but has not been legally declared so by a solemn judgment of the church. The idea here is that the sin of heresy precedes the judgment of the church that a man actually is a heretic, right? It just makes sense. And even if the church never got around in a particular place of judging some man, nonetheless, if he were to stubbornly deny any revealed truth of the Catholic faith, even after he'd been shown to be wrong, he'd still be a heretic before God. Okay, the situation with schism is analogous. We can speak of schismatics before God. In other words, of people who are schismatic but have not been legally declared so by a solemn judgment of the church. The sin of schism precedes the judgment of the church. If a group or even an individual, while keeping the true faith, nevertheless voluntarily, deliberately, and knowingly separates himself from the unity of the church by refusing to submit to the authority of the Pope and or to remain in communion with those who are subject to him, he or they would still be schismatic even if the church never got around to making a solemn declaration. They'd be schismatics before God. So schism is is principally and essentially a question of moral theology, not of canon law. One notable aspect of the particular evil spirit behind the cynicism 
that we've seen throughout the ages is that it gives adherents of this sin an impression, which is really an illusion of purity and piety. It makes them feel holy and good about maintaining doctrinal and moral purity and at the same time to feel justified in separating themselves from obedience to the Pope or communion with other Catholics as if they might somehow become tainted by these sorts of associations. And you can read any sort of controversial thing put out by orthodox apologetics to see this exact sort of thing. It's extraordinary when you read some of the things there. But even with evil and sacrilegious men present in the church, we certainly have an abundance of them now, we cannot and must not under any circumstances separate ourselves from the unity church and form a separate communion. Let's pause for a moment and consider a particular historical situation. Within hours, literally hours of their consecration, one of the first bishops of the church committed suicide. The first pope denied our Lord three times, and along with nine of the remaining bishops, proceeded to abandon our Lord. In other words, roughly 92% of the first bishops of the Catholic Church, including the Pope, ran away. It's spectacular. Within hours of being consecrated, roughly 92% of the first bishops of the Catholic Church, including the Pope, abandoned our Lord. Only one remained faithful until the bitter end. And it is impossible to conceive of a more bitter end than standing there on Calvary at the foot of the cross. And yet at that time, he couldn't explain what was happening. How can God die? Isn't that the Messiah hanging there? What's going on here? Even though he couldn't yet answer those questions, he stayed close to Our Lady. And because he stayed close to Our Lady, even when the scandal and the horror were too great, for his fellow bishops and the Pope. He remained faithful. He stayed close to Our Lady, and he remained faithful. It would be sheer blasphemy to suggest, and in response to all this, St. John, the faithful apostle, the faithful bishop, should separate himself from communion with Peter and the other apostles and set up his own separate communion. These guys are sinners. They're compromisers. We've got to pull away. It would be blasphemy to suggest that he should pull away from the sinners. But that's exactly what schism is. And if St. John had no right or reason to break the unity of the mystical body, and he had not, then how much less has anyone over these past 2,000 years had the right to break the unity of the mystical body? As we enter more deeply into the passion of the church, and it looks ever more like his mystical body is dying, and it looks like so many of the hierarchy or abandoning our Lord, even with evil and sacrilegious men present in the church, even if we can't explain exactly what's happening, if we stay close to Our Lady, she will obtain for us the grace not to break communion with Peter and the church, the grace to not refuse to submit to the authority of the Pope and or to remain in communion with those who are subject to him, because we cannot and we must not under any circumstances separate ourselves from the unity of the church and form a separate communion. It's a salvation issue. This is a salvation issue. Now, that all that being said, I want to read St. Augustine quote again, and we'll go from there. 
It is a manifest rule that one on it no wise secede from the Catholic communion, that is, from the body of Christians throughout the world, by the establishment of a separate communion, even on the admission of evil and sacrilegious men. So even when we have evil and sacrilegious men. I have a letter in my possession. It's written by a very likable and zealous young SSPX priest. We actually, the letter, he actually praises me in this parish, and at the same time, he insists the lady, lady should avoid here because, and I quote, as the FSSP has the element of compromise, by that he means that we're in union with the conciliar church, in other words, in union with the bishop and, and the pope. As the FSSP has the element of compromise, it is consequently evil and must therefore be avoided, close quote. Well, this is a common attitude. It starts at the top. I could do a lot of these. I'll just quote one more. Bishop Bernard Fillet, the superior general of this SSPX, quote, the church has cancer. We don't want to embrace the church because then we'll get cancer too, close quote. I don't read this with any delight at all. This breaks my heart. As Pope Benedict XVI stated to the SSPX bishops and priests, quote, they do not legitimately exercise any ministry in the church, close quote. They're suspended ad divinis. Now, if you're not a cleric, that might not sound like much. But that means it happens if you... It happens automatically if you get ordained in certain circumstances. This is from the ancient church. You have to have things called demissorial letters, so you have to have permission from your ordinary to be ordained by someone who isn't your ordinary. Origen got in trouble for this. This is nothing new. Okay, so anyway, they're suspended ad divinis once they become a deacon, which means, in their case, unless they're actually dying, they have to have that suspension lifted before they can be validly absolved in the confessional. You heard that right. There's a barrier between the suspended priest and the confessor, and it doesn't matter who the confessor is. You can absolve till the cows come home, and it's just going to ricochet off because you can't penetrate that, and a bishop can't penetrate that, and a cardinal can't penetrate that. They can't make a good confession until and unless they have the suspension lifted by Rome. They can't make a good confession because they can't be validly absolved. I think this may be why over the course of the years they have lost about 50% of the priest. As far as I know, it's the highest percentage in the world. We, re we really need to pray for these guys. We really need to pray for them. Except in the case of someone actually dying, they can't lift the excommunication attached to abortion. So, as everybody here knows, or you're going to know right now, if you're involved in an, in, in an intimate way with abortion, either having the abortion, driving the person there, taking them in, paying for the abortion, those kind of things, you get excommunicated, just ipso facto. You do it, you're excommunicated. They can't lift, except in the case of someone dying, they can't lift the excommunication attached to abortion since they don't have the faculty to hear confessions and supply jurisdiction won't work in that case. Think about that. The SSBX bishops reordained priests. In at least one case, an SSBX bishop reordained a priest who had been ordained by the Pope. You can draw your own conclusions there. They reconfirm Catholics. As everyone knows from the Catechism, confirmation leaves an indelible mark on the soul. So the sacrament which cannot, must not be repeated under the pain of sacrilege, yet they customarily reconfirm Catholics. They judge marriage cases and even dare to grant annulments in spite of the explicit 
anathema of the Council of Trent. And I quote, Canon 12, If anyone saith that matrimonial causes do not belong to ecclesiastical judges, let him be anathema. Close quote, Council of Trent, Session 24, 11 November, 1543. In 1991, three of the SSPX bishops consecrated another bishop without a papal mandate. So not only were they consecrated bishops against the will of the Pope, they've also consecrated a bishop against the will of the Pope. But if the Pope commands a bishop not to consecrate, then that bishop cannot claim a papal mandate to consecrate, for then he'd be claiming that the church's head on earth is not the Pope. As we've seen, the cynicism precedes the judgment of the church. If a group or even an individual keeping the true faith nevertheless voluntarily, knowingly, deliberately separated himself from the unity of the church by refusing to submit to the authority of the Pope and or to remain in communion with those who are subject to him, he or they would still be schismatic, even if the church never got around to making a solemn declaration. But in this case, there has been a solemn declaration by a judge whose judgments cannot be appealed. Quote, in itself, this act was one of disobedience to the Roman pontiff in a very grave matter and of supreme importance for the unity of the church, such as is the ordination of bishops, whereby the apostolic succession is sacramentally perpetuated. Hence, such disobedience, which implies in practice the rejection of the Roman primacy, constitutes a schismatic act. I wish especially to make an appeal both solemn and heartfelt, paternal and fraternal, to all those who until now have been linked in various ways to the movement of Archbishop Lefebvre, they may fulfill the grave duty of remaining united to the Vicar of Christ in the unity of the Catholic Church and of ceasing their support in any way for that movement. Everyone should be aware that formal adherence to the schism is a grave offense against God. Close quote, Pope John Paul II, 2nd July, 1988. Everyone should be aware that formal adherence to the schism is a grave offense against God. We need to pray. Pray and sacrifice for the speedy return of all those faithful priests and bishops who have cut themselves off from the vine. And I know I'm not the only one here with friends over there. We need now more than ever to have the courage to look the truth in the eye and to call things by the proper name without yielding to convenient compromises of the temptation of self-deception. Many people's consciences have been progressively obscured. The acceptance of schism in the popular mind and behavior is a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil. Let's close. In the last times, there will be an absolutely terrible, unprecedented outbreak of evil, during which time, Society will be torn to pieces by apostasy, heresy, schism, sedition, revolution, and war. We live in dark, dark times. Our society is being torn apart by apostasy, heresy, schism. We've got sedition breaking out in cities around our beloved country. We're fighting wars and fomenting revolutions all over the globe. We find ourselves immersed 
in a society of men who still, for the most part, profess to be Christians, but are yet wicked in their works and perverse in their ideas and clearly love pleasure more than God. Men who, for the most part, don't seem to want to hear the truth because it hurts, because it means they'll have to change their sinful and disordered ways of living and their sinful and disordered ways of thinking. Men who'd rather have teachers affirm them in their sins and lie to them than correct them, correct their false beliefs, their vices, and hurt their feelings. The church is in shambles. The Pope says so many bizarre things, it's almost impossible to keep track of them all. We need to pray for fidelity to the truth. We need to pray for the humility to embrace the truth, no matter how painful or how much it costs. We need to pray for the humility to take responsibility for our own actions, for the humility to admit it when we're acting wrongly or thinking wrongly. As we enter more deeply into the passion of the church in these dark, dark days, And as it looks ever more like his mystical body is dying, covered with wounds, smitten by sin, abandoned by so many priests, abandoned by so many priests and members of the hierarchy. Even though we can't fully explain what is happening, if we stay close to Our Lady, we stay close to Our Lady, she'll obtain for us the grace to remain faithful to the end, to remain faithful to the truth, to truth incarnate, until the very end.